from Indiana to Bloomsburg, Bedford to Elizabethtown, this is Lincoln Radio Journal. On this edition, Governor Josh Shapiro has delivered his budget address, and now the proposed new state spending plan moves to the legislature, where budget hearings are about to get underway. David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is here to host a Capital Watch roundtable discussion on the state budget. And State House Democrats got complaints four years ago about sexual harassment by a lawmaker who was only recently forced to resign. I'll have a town hall commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to Lincoln Radio Journal. We'll get to our Capital Watch crew in just a couple of minutes, but first, news headlines from patownhall.com. In the category of little things having big consequences, a rule change made last year that effectively allows trial lawyers to file lawsuits in counties where they think they will get to biggest settlements, as opposed to filing the suit in the county where the alleged infraction occurred, medical malpractice suits filed in Philadelphia County have skyrocketed. The Philadelphia Inquirer reports the number of such cases almost tripled in January and February after the new rule took effect. Philadelphia juries are famous for giving large awards and thus are an attractive place for trial lawyers seeking big payout to clients. Early moves are being made in the race for the 2024 Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate seat from Pennsylvania. David McCormick, who lost by a razor-thin margin to Dr. Mehmet Oz last year, released a new book this past week entitled Superpower in Peril. He has embarked on a book tour that will take him to, among other places, the Ronald Reagan Library, which serves as the epicenter of conservative policy discussions. Meanwhile, State Senator Doug Mastriano held his first rally since suffering a 15-point loss in the race for governor last year. Mastriano has hinted at a possible bid for the Senate seat. The seat is currently held by U.S. Senator Robert P. Casey Jr., who has served since defeating former Senator Rick Santorum in 2006. Casey has not yet indicated whether or not he will seek re-election next year. Tucked into Governor Josh Shapiro's first budget is a plan to eliminate both the sales and use tax and the gross receipts tax on cell phone services. Shapiro talked about eliminating the taxes during his campaign for governor last year. He now says dropping the levies would save Pennsylvania consumers some $124 million per year. But the governor is proposing to increase the monthly fee that users pay to fund 911 emergency services, and future increases in that fee will be tied to the rate of inflation. Currently, Pennsylvania levies some of the highest fees on cell phone and wireless use in the nation. Read about all things Pennsylvania at patownhall.com. Lawmakers are now going to have their turn at crafting a new state budget as appropriations committees begin to hold hearings on the governor's proposed spending plan. Our Capital Watch crew is here to talk about it. David Taylor from the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association is joined by Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association and Stephen Bloom of the Commonwealth Foundation. David, 
And welcome once again to Capital Watch, where we keep an eye on what's happening under the Capitol Dome in Harrisburg for you. I'm your host, David Taylor, president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. With me in the studio, your Capital Watch all-stars, the president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association, Rebecca Euler. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be here again, David. Thanks. And also the vice president of Pennsylvania's free market think tank, the Commonwealth Foundation, Steve Bloom. Great to be here, David. Well, great to be with you guys, too. And, um, you know, today it seems like everything is focused on the on the economic news and the kind of churning uh, uncertainty that we're seeing uh, from events both, you know, national and and here in Pennsylvania. And, um, Steve, I suppose the first thing that's on people's mind is this uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the uh, – the, the threat of a pending federal bailout. And obviously, the banking system is critical to the economic stability of our country or any country. And so when, when things start to go fuzzy in the banking system, people get nervous, and rightfully so. So citizens are concerned. Obviously, depositors of Silicon Valley Bank and then Signature Bank were so concerned that they started to take their money out of the bank and try to get it while they could. Mm-hmm. And when that psychology sets in, it's it's a self-fulfilling machine or a source yeah. of, of feeds more on further panic. Yeah. It feeds on itself. And we saw that happening to the point where over the weekend, the, the uh, federal regulators met with some of the key players nationally and globally to try to stabilize that scenario, acting essentially beyond the authorization that they have in law right. in the United States to intervene. Right. And that's where we get – there's a second layer of trouble here because when you essentially exceed what the law says you can do to to help a bank stabilize itself, you are now in the position where you're essentially tacitly guaranteeing that to any other bank that gets in trouble. Right. And that creates that moral hazard effect where after seeing this sort of behavior – other bankers are going to think, well, if we mess up, it's okay because yeah. they'll rush in and save us too. Yeah. Yeah. And the so the way that I understand it is very much just in layman's terms is that you had Silicon Valley Bank, which was a lender to high-tech startups and that um, the the bank put its deposits into federal treasury bills. So they they took their money, they took the money from the depositors and put it into what they considered the safest possible instrument, T-bills. Well, the problem for the bank is that those treasury notes, they're 10-year notes and they're generating 2% interest, which – Back, you know, five years ago would have been perfectly fine. However, it wound up being like a very big one-way bet on interest rates. And now that interest rates are higher and that people can get more than 2% with just like a basic, you know, savings account, that the investors want to take the money out and put it somewhere where they can get bigger returns, which is understandable. But that still doesn't strike me as being a reason why the – FDIC and the taxpayers should should be intervening to get those investors a higher level of return. And essentially, they again, they intervened over a weekend without any sort of official statutory authorization for right. what they did. Right. They acted within presumed powers that they, they seem to uh, believe that they had, but yet they don't necessarily by law have those powers. Yeah. So it, that really creates a thorny mess. And just to be clear for, for listeners who 
haven't really you know studied the idea of banks and what they do. Like every bank, they take depositors' money, their deposits, in order to invest it and make a profit on it. And so it's typical, of course, that a bank doesn't have all the cash right. that, that rep- is represented it. in all of the different different customers' deposits sitting around. Right. That cash is at work earning a, earning a profit essentially for the bank. Correct. And so that there's nothing wrong with that part. But when the banks are making risky or poorly planned investments that put the whole entire enterprise in jeopardy, that's when we have to worry. And there is, there's a question about the adequacy of the strictness of the regulations on banks in mm-hmm. this country mm-hmm. and the, the conditions which allow a bank to do the sort of thing where it stumbles and then, then essentially the rest of us, one way or another, have to come back and, and rescue it. Well, think about the inflation rate. Now, the, the numbers just came out again recently. 6% was the, the flagship rate, the, 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 the rate that was being quoted under the new results that just came out. 6% they're, they're touting as well. It's lower than it was the last several months. So that's good. But people, it's not that the prices went down. It, they stopped going up quite as fast as they were. Right, right. So it's still hard for people to afford things. And yeah. it's still hard for people who, especially are on a fixed income, right. when costs are going up 6%, that's right. a lot. That's significant. It is. And it's not anything to celebrate. It's three times the rate that the, the, the uh, financial authorities normally suggest as being appropriate for a, a, a robust economy. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. So 6% inflation is not good. It's destabilizing. It's within this context that we pivot to the annual Pennsylvania General Fund budget and all of the proceedings thereunto appertaining that His Excellency the Governor already put forward his uh, budget address and with it the budget proposal. Um, But starting this upcoming week that we're going to have the uh, House and Senate Appropriations Committee uh, have the uh, the various uh, state departments uh, run the gauntlet and uh, and undergo cross examination about the governor's spending plan? And that's the first step in, or really the second step in the process of reaching a an actual budget that would be enacted by the end of June upcoming. The governor gave his pitch two weeks ago, and now the the legislature through the House and Senate separate appropriations committees. Uh, holding essentially parallel hearings over right. three or four weeks now, up till about mid-April, uh, the 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 um, legislative branch gets a chance to really interrogate and grill the administration, the government, the governor's administration, the, the cabinet secretaries, agency heads, other organizations that are seeking state funding, state-related organizations, and ask the hard questions. And so, this is kind of an opportunity that we have to to watch the 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 sausage being made, so to speak. Because these questions that the, the uh, appropriations committee members ask are are they're officially you know in a hearing where yes. where they're they're publicized the press is watching witnesses are sworn witnesses are sworn and it's critical that these questions be asked to make sure that we don't see a budget that's tr- drastically overspending right because everybody <laughs> wants a piece of the budget action every and, and every group is lobbying for their share yes, of it and yes. so this is an opportunity for accountability. It's especially, I think, interesting this year because with a new governor, a new administration here, this is our chance to really hear what they have in mind for the future of the state. Um, and it's time, you know, it's the time for legislators to really ask those questions and dig into what the the policy makers um, in this administration believe uh, where they're going in the agencies. So, um, as Steve said, the appropriations committees are where that's going to happen. They're going to call up the individual secretaries and sometimes deputy secretaries in those agencies. 
who will be able to answer specific policy questions. So it will be where we'll get a feel for where this governor is going um, policy-wise in each of those agencies. And for those of us who are familiar with the drama, it's like a very subtle form of combat. Yes, um, it is. The, it's true. Because the, the default position of the of the people who are asking for the money, the, the, it's going to be everything is fine. You know, it's like – Everything's fine, and it'll be even better if you just give us that pile of money. And so it's incumbent <laughs> upon the lawmakers to know the underlying facts, underlying dynamics, um, and to to know where the weaknesses are in that in that happy face kind of facade, so that we can have an honest conversation about what's really at stake. And it would be nice if everything was fine, and we could just help every organization <laughs> and every cabinet agency that that claims that it needs funds. But we can't. We're already looking at, uh, even in the budget as proposed by Governor Shapiro, we're looking at a, a $3 billion structural deficit in that budget. And that's going to be covered over this year by the fact that there are excess funds remaining from the COVID relief that came through in the last couple of years and the rainy day fund. But if this continues for several more cycles, we're going to be looking at a straight up deficit that's going to force the administration to ask for a tax hike in two or three years. We don't want that. That's extremely destructive for Pennsylvania. It's already tough enough for Pennsylvania to compete for national and international investment because of our bad tax structure and our bad regulatory environment. If we get to the point where we're we're actually making that worse, that's shooting ourselves in the foot. So if, in fact, the administration is serious about this budget, we're going to be watching for signs that they are willing to confront some of the biggest cost drivers in the budget not just take money out of the rainy day fund and take money out of the reserve that came from the federal money that was the COVID relief, but to actually delve in and and deal with, for example, the incredibly high cost of human services, public welfare in in Pennsylvania. The single biggest chunk in the Pennsylvania state budget is over 41% of the budget. It's it's almost half of what we do. And people need, there has to be a social safety net. We're not saying there shouldn't be, but it, it can't continue to operate when it's sucking so much out of the available available funds that Pennsylvania has. You're listening to Capital Watch. I'm your host, David Taylor, from Pennsylvania Manufacturers. With me, Steve Bloom from Commonwealth Foundation and Rebecca Euler from the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association. And Steve, getting back to your point, um, that is 100% correct. And I want to just take a moment to explain to the listeners about the structural deficit. You may have heard us talk about this before. The structural deficit is when increases in mandatory state spending increase more than the natural growth in the economy and the tax revenue that's that's thrown off by that under current conditions. And this goes back to, um, you know, again, for, for longtime listeners, that it was during the Obama era and under Obamacare that states were induced – to dramatically increase Medicaid, which is uh, taxpayer-funded health care for, for poor people um, and uh, expectant mothers and, um, and poor senior citizens. So Governor Corbett at the time resisted it and negotiated hard with the Obama administration and came up with a system of private insurance to direct those benefits in a way that would be that would get people help 
but would also be financially stable over time. Well, as soon as Governor Tom Wolf came into office, he scrapped all that and just did a blanket expansion of Medicaid, which is now one of the main cost drivers in that human services budget that you were talking about there, Stephen. And the thing that's just so infuriating is that Medicaid is a high-cost, low-quality program. Like, it does not serve the, the the beneficiaries well at all. And at the same time, it's a hugely, hugely expensive program. So it's like the worst of both worlds that it doesn't help people as much as it should. It's a big cost driver. And because it's mandatory spending, there's very little we can do about it. And it's designed to be means tested. So it's, it's not medic Medicaid is not for everyone. If you can on your own afford to have medical care or, or medical insurance, you're not typically going to be using the services of Medicaid. But over the last couple of years during the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, they basically stopped enforcing the, the eligibility. Yes. The eligibility. Yes. And so everyone who applied for it got it. And since then, no one has to re-verify. Right. So no one's had – they haven't checked. Right. So they're – And it's literally, illegal. It's actually illegal to – to go back and check. And we're to, carrying people on the Medicaid rolls that's costing the state a tremendous – and the taxpayers of the state a tremendous amount of money that we don't necessarily have available. And many of the people we're helping aren't the ones who are the, the programs designed to help. And in, and in fact, it is keeping us from being able to fully help those who really need it. What underlies all of this is demographics and that um, at, at my organization, at Pennsylvania Manufacturers, we recently had – um, Matt Niddle, who's the director of the, the Legislative Independent Fiscal Office, who gave a report on on all these things. And, and Rebecca, you were there. Um, yeah. What what were your thoughts about what the director had to say? He had a lot of interesting takeaways, some of which um, we were talking a little earlier here are, are kind of scary. Uh, some of his conclusions, especially the demographic conclusions, um, as we've been talking on the show for a long time, Pennsylvania is losing people and especially young people, young people who would normally be the folks who uh, work and pay taxes and could support um, the structure that we need to support in the Commonwealth to maintain our, our economy and our government and all of that. We are losing young people. And uh, we do have a disproportionate number of older folks in Pennsylvania. I believe last I saw we're the second oldest state um, next to Florida, I believe. Um, so we do have um, sort of a, um, a an out-of-balance population, and, and that trend is getting worse right. over time because right. we're losing young people. And that was the and that was, I think, for me, the most distressing thing from the report that we that at the same time that the workforce participation rate yes. by younger people, people in their prime years, that that was down. Um, so we've, we've, we're losing people from that cadre. The people who are who are of that age who are here are working less working often. Less, right. And um, and if anything, that we've got you know the the increase in in the senior population. Um, some of those folks are joining the workforce, but yeah. it's a small percentage. And um, again, it just puts us on the wrong kind of trend line. It, it, trend line. And to me, it just screams out: we have to make it easier and more affordable to create and keep jobs in Pennsylvania if we don't fix the other things too with permitting and regulations with out of control lawsuit abuse like there are so many different things that we need to do but if we do them 
we can be dramatically better. Like there are so many natural advantages that Pennsylvania has that those could manifest our, you know, our access to market, our natural resources, our uh, mature institutions of finance and our institutions of higher learning. Like all these things are there, but we don't really feel the full benefit of them because of the stupid things that we do. And the, the thing is, whenever we look at tax policy, fiscal policy, regulatory policy, we can't just look at it in Pennsylvania because what Pennsylvania does is compared instantly by investors across the board with what other states are doing yep. or what other countries are doing. Yep. And we're in, a, we're in a situation in these last two or three years where many, many states that are our top competitors have actually improved their tax climate, improved their regulatory climate. So Pennsylvania, we're struggling to fix some problems we've had. But, but we should be doing much more than that. We should be trying to get out ahead of our competitors. Right. So we, we've seen, and, and Rebecca was talking about the, the population figures, and we've seen the, the great loss of qualified workers to other states, especially states that have fixed their tax policy and, and fixed their, their regulatory policy. North Carolina, mm-hmm. Texas, Florida, Arizona. Mm-hmm. The state People are just moving out of here quickly because of that. Right. It's, it's obvious. It's known. We just have to take action. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's like people go where the opportunities are. And so, you know, there's no reason why uh, that has to happen. Like the world does not have to be that way. But for those of us in this public policy arena, we understand those improvements can only come from decisions made in Harrisburg by our governor and the new administration and all of our lawmakers and other decision makers. You know, it has to be a choice. We have to act like we want the investment and the jobs and the growth to happen here. And certainly that has not been Pennsylvania's hallmark over time. Well, if we uh, come back to how we started here about the upcoming budget hearings that were going to be happening in the appropriations committees, it is the legislature's job to oversee the spending in the agencies. So those questions that they're asking should really get to the heart of how do we see, you know, addressing the structural deficit? What policy choices are the agencies, you know, choosing? to make that will increase growth in the economy in Pennsylvania. These are the things that the legislature should be asking. So I hope to hear a lot of those questions in the coming weeks. Yeah. And for and for those watching from home, um, the, the, the key the key tell is when the 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 testifiers were some, well, I'll have to get back to you on that. I'll, I don't have that in front of me, but we'll we'll get you that information like that's a dodge. Anyway, nothing we're not completely used to. Um, but we are uh, – we're winding down here. We're, we're running out of time. As always, we're grateful to all of you for, for listening to us. And Steve, where can people go to learn more about you and what you do? They can visit CommonwealthFoundation.org on the web. Excellent. Rebecca, where can people go to find out more about you? They can find the Pennsylvania Motor Truck Association at PMTA.org. Wonderful. And as always, you can find me online at PAManufacturers.org and on the Pennsylvania Cable Network on Sunday mornings at 830 with PMA Perspective. From Steve and Rebecca and me, thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Capital Watch. And now, a town hall commentary from Loman Henry. Thank you, David. The election of Joanna McClinton as the first female speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives has been celebrated as a milestone for women in government. That it is. But the achievement has been tarnished by a growing scandal over House Democrats' systemic tolerance of sexual harassment, especially when it impacts their political power. 
The face of the issue is former state representative Mike Zabel, a Delaware County Democrat who is forced to resign in disgrace following multiple allegations of unwanted sexual advances against women, including a labor union lobbyist and a female state House member. With a narrow one-seat majority, House Democrats stonewalled, forcing Zabel to resign long enough to reorganize the chamber and populate leadership with their members. It was a stunning act of crass politics for a party which claims to make the protection of women against sexual harassment a top priority. Zabel's downfall was largely forced by media coverage. Broad and Liberty, a publication specializing in investigative journalism in southeastern Pennsylvania, was the first to name Zabel as the perpetrator. When that failed to force the hand of Democratic leadership, State Representative Abby Major, a Republican from western Pennsylvania, stepped forward to detail Zabel's unwanted advances toward her, understatedly terming him a, quote, creep. Now Spotlight PA, an independent collaboration by many of the state's leading newspapers, has revealed Democrat leaders knew of Zabel's misdeeds at least since 2019, when labor union lobbyist Andy Perez informed then-State House Minority Leader Frank Dermody what had happened. It wasn't until earlier this year, during a so-called listening tour by then-House Speaker Mark Rossi, that Perez stepped forward to make her accusations public. Still, House Democrats did nothing. The pleadings of female Republican lawmakers for strong action fell on deaf ears. Zabel continued to refuse to offer his resignation, but did step down from his committee assignments while attempting to portray his creepy behavior as an illness which could be treated. That was enough for Abby Major, who then called a news conference to force the issue. Her account of Zabel's actions was detailed, credible, and emotional, as she pointed out, no man could understand the effect such behavior has on women. Women understood. Men who cared deeply for the women in their lives understood such behavior could not be tolerated. It was the last straw. Zabel finally resigned from the House. That, however, should not be the end of the story. House policies relative to sexual harassment by its members and staff are terribly lax. It is clear the procedure for adjudicating such actions is broken and subject to political manipulation. The policy, for example, only covers actions taken under the Capitol Dome. But much legislative business occurs outside of the Capitol, which was the case involving Abby Major. Allegations against Mike Zabel were made four years ago, yet no action was taken. He was allowed to remain in office this year because House Democrats needed his vote to claim leadership positions. Zabel's resignation occurred only after a Republican member resigned to take a seat in the state Senate. With one vacancy in each caucus, the Democrats' one-year majority was thus preserved. Both seats will now be filled in special elections to be held in conjunction with the May primary. The question now arises, what else and who else is being shielded from public view? Only tougher rules extending to actions of House members on and off the Capitol grounds and the continued vigilance of the news media, which deserves credit for its outstanding reporting on the Zabel story, will bring about true reform, giving women and men the protection to which they are entitled. With a town hall commentary, I'm Loman Henry. If you miss hearing Lincoln Radio Journal on your favorite radio station, audio of our complete program is available on our websites, lincolnradiojournal.com and lincolninstitute.org. 
And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will be the special guest speaker at this year's Pennsylvania Leadership Conference, which is the premier annual gathering of grassroots conservatives every year here in the Keystone State. This year's Pennsylvania Leadership Conference is now less than two weeks away. It's March 30th through April 1st at the Penn Harris Hotel in Camp Hill. In addition to Governor DeSantis, speakers will include Kellyanne Conway as the featured dinner speaker. She will be joined by Guy Benson of Fox News and John Gizzi of Newsmax as conference headline speakers. There will be workshops, seminars, panels, and additional speakers. Complete information, a preliminary agenda, and registration for the 2023 Pennsylvania Leadership Conference can be found at paleadershipconference.org. That's paleadershipconference.org. The Lincoln Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, including the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association, the Allegheny Foundation of Pittsburgh, and the Houston Foundation of Coatesville, all of whom have helped to underwrite the costs of this program. Lincoln Radio Journal is a trademark of the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. From the Lincoln Broadcast Center in Harrisburg, I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to Pennsylvania's most widely broadcast public affairs radio program, Lincoln Radio Journal, plug into the pulse of Pennsylvania.